In his book, The God Delusion, atheist biologist Richard Dawkins contends that the God of the Bible is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Dawkins says that he is jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Simply said, Professor Dawkins does not know God. Of course, the question for us here today is, do you? Do you? Who is God to you? And how do you know that you're right in what you think? Dawkins is dead wrong. But he has merely yielded to a temptation that I think is inherent in all of our depraved hearts. Dawkins expresses a theology from below in which he casts God into an image of his own choosing, then pays homage to that defective image. What we must have is a theology from above, a revelation from God concerning who He truly is. All people receive a measure of such revelation in the beauty, the wonder, and the sheer grandeur of nature. We look at what God has created and we see there a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-beautiful, and the sustainer of life. But blinded by sin, people naturally reject this revelation of God, as Romans 1 makes so clear. Stopping their ears and stealing their hearts, they busy themselves then in forming alternative models of God, creating idols to usurp His place shaped into their own image and likeness. The reality is, as we gather here together today as the followers of Christ, that we live in a world where the one true and living God remains largely unknown and where people suffer the devastating results of this moral ignorance. Indeed, to one degree or another, every one of us suffers from ill-formed, twisted, and unenlightened views of God. But as the Apostle Paul escapes his Berea and the trials that he faced there, he enters an environment where ignorance of God was rampant. And as we come to Acts chapter 15, I invite you there in his classic sermon in Athens... This sermon serves as revelatory light for those who seek the knowledge of who God really is. It also serves as a convicting reminder of our call to spread this knowledge of God through proclamation of the true gospel. Acts chapter 17, you'll recall that on this second missionary circuit, Paul's successful ministry at Berea was cut short when we read chapter 17 and verse 13, there were Jews from Thessalonica who learned that the Word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also. They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. 
Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there, there in Berea. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So at the center of this second missionary journey, we find Paul in the southern stretches of Greece at the great and renowned city of Athens. He arrives here and Luke focuses on Paul's speech to the Athenian power brokers who rule the citadel of Greek paganism that is here at Athens. Coming from uh, Philippi to Thessalonica, there's of course response in both of these places, particular persecution in Thessalonica, then to Berea and down to Athens as you see on the map here. We come then to Athens and to Paul's ministry there, and it appears that he's largely alone. But let's think of what he sees there as he enters into this great Greek city. We have, first of all, the Acropolis. That is simply a rock outcropping of which there are many in Greece and in this region, in fact. But this is perhaps the most prominent of all, the most famous of all. There he would have seen the Acropolis with the Parthenon on the top, a uh, contemporary picture of it here on that brow of that hill overlooking the city was the great Parthenon the, on the Acropolis there at Athens. This to the honor of the goddess Athena, the city's namesake, there was a gold and ivory statue of Athena that stood in the Parthenon. The glint of the sun off her spear point alone could be seen 40 miles away. It was a glorious sight. You can travel to Greece to this day and get a sense of the splendor and the wonder of this location. Or, if you want to go a little cheaper, you can go to Nashville, Tennessee and see a replica there. I don't think it, it, it kind of pales in comparison, I think, on a couple of levels. But this was a magnificent sight. I mean, you think of this Jewish rabbi walking into this grand city. And we can only begin to imagine its splendor and its wonder and its history. There were numerous other temples on this Acropolis. They could be seen from the Agora or the marketplace where the Athenians did business. This was where the, uh, the marketplace, as we think of it, where they bought things. And it was also the place where the philosophers debated. There were legal matters that were settled there. There were prominent buildings that surrounded the Agora, this public square. And time does not permit a lengthy discussion of the glories of Athens, but suffice it to say that Athens was at least in its history. It had a proud military history. It was looked to among the city-states of Greece as a prominent and powerful city. It was the cradle of philosophy, the birthplace of people such as Socrates and Plato, and the chosen home of Aristotle. And on and on the individuals go that were famous philosophers who would land here in Athens and teach here. It was the cradle of democracy. Literature, art, sculpture, rhetoric flourished here for centuries. Witherington says of Athens it had become something of a museum of the world, of the grandeur of the Greek culture. It was the staging ground of some 30,000 statues, such as you see here of the god Poseidon, 
They weren't in various states of disarray and falling apart as we see here, but they were gloriously present all throughout Athens. It's said that the gods in Athens, the statues of gods, outnumbered the people three to one. They were everywhere. This is what Paul sees as he walks into this grand city. Verse 16, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. What would you see as you went into Athens? Just reading about it this week, I want to go now and see it for what it is today. Imagine what it would have been there at that time. I, Nashville doesn't sound quite as good to me. But uh, what, what a, just an amazing sight. What does he see? There's these stunning sculptures everywhere. It would be easy to become mesmerized by the splendors of Athens, but everywhere Paul looked, he saw moral misery. He saw ignorance of the one true and living God. No matter what a person or city or nation has in material wealth, in prominence, without the knowledge of God, they have absolutely nothing. And this is what Paul knew, and it's what he saw With the eyes of Jesus, Paul saw proud and wealthy Athens as a moral ghetto, languishing in her ignorant depravity. The text says that Paul was provoked in his spirit. The Greek word would indicate that he was agitated. He was deeply distressed by what he saw. There were feelings, undoubtedly, of intense jealousy in Paul's heart. Because amidst all the statues of gods lived a people showering the honor due to God alone on these worthless idols. Paul's zeal for God was revealed in a heart that could not stand idly by while people perished in their sin and did not see the one true and living God for who He was. I wonder as we think on that, what we see when we walk into our cities. What do you see when you see a city skyline? What goes through your mind and your heart and your soul? What do we see when we're in a traffic jam? What do we see when we're in a busy mall? If we do not see the masses and the cultures in which we travel in this world in light of their relationship to God, we are really blind to reality. How easily awed we are by technology and the building capacities of our culture. And how easily irritated we are with the masses. But do we see all of it as Jesus sees it? People in the bondage of sin. That's how Paul saw it. Now He intended to wait for the help of Silas and Timothy to arrive from Berea, but apparently... His evangelistic soul is so stirred that he rolls up his sleeves and he goes solo. Verse 17. So, so, and that's where I draw that idea, so, on the basis of what he has seen here in this city, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace, the, the Agora, every day with those who happen to be there. In the synagogue, of course, he finds those with common ground. Jews who are God-fearing, these Gentiles who knew God and worship God as the creator and sustainer of the universe, as the revealer of truth, as the Lord of history, 
They share these ideas. They know about the promises of Messiah. He goes there and he reasons with them from the Scriptures proclaiming Christ. However, he also goes into the marketplace. He goes where the people are and he reasons with Athenians in the Agora to the immediate west of this Acropolis that we've seen. There are people there that are willing to converse. And here he has very little common ground. The Athenians were polytheists. They believed in a cyclical view of history. There was no God that was running history. They were idolaters. They were dualists. That is, the physical world is inherently tainted and evil, not created by a good God. They had a thoroughly corrupt view of creation, a corrupt view of sin, and a corrupt view of salvation. There's very little that Paul shares with these who are in the Athenian Agora, but he goes and he proclaims Christ here. He does so to such a degree that he begins to gain the attention of those that are there. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Possibly Jesus and Anastasis. The Greek word for resurrection, which happened to be a god that they worshipped, a goddess, Anastasis. We don't know who this Jesus is, but we know about Anastasis. He seems to be melding these two together. He's a babbler, which is to say in the Greek text that he was an ignorant plagiarizer who stole others' ideas. He's stealing the Anastasis, possibly, and he's bringing in this Jesus. We don't know about this God. He's mixing them together. He really doesn't know what he's doing. It's fascinating to watch how Paul does know what he's doing. And to see in his speech, if we had the time to lay out here what the Epicureans believed and what the Stoics believed, it's interesting to watch as Paul brings his ideas to match these philosophies at places and to utterly destroy their foundation in the very next phrase over and again, bringing his speech to identify with where they are thinking, while at the same time tearing down the foundations. We don't have the time to do that. We don't have the time to lay out who the Epicureans were, what they believed, and what the Stokes believed, but it's a fascinating study as we look at this um, sermon that he is about to preach. But he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. On this they are clear. They aren't clear on what this all means. The Stoics, by the way, and we'll come back to this slide later, but they uh, gained their name from the stoa, or the portico, this sort of pillared porch, uh, where their teacher Zeno taught here in Athens. So he's right on Stoic territory. And uh, I think we'll come back to this, because I believe this is very likely where Paul preached his sermon before the power shakers here at Athens. We come to verse 19. They took hold of him. So they're arguing about what he's preaching. They take hold of him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, the Areopagus means simply the council of Ares, a Greek god. 
It refers to the High Council of Athens here, I think. Originally it met at a hill northwest of the Acropolis called the Hill of Ares. Ares, the god of war, and we might be more familiar with Mars Hill, the uh, Roman name for this god of, of war. But originally meeting on this outcropping of rock, the Areopagus just came to speak of the council itself. And at the time of Paul was very likely meeting here, or in this scene was very likely meeting here. They did meet here, but they met at other places. But very po- probably meeting at this royal portico or Stoa Basilius. Uh, this would be very likely where Paul is now brought by these philosophers into this portico and is brought to account for what he believes. We have a Jewish rabbi brought to this place of high prominence before the high council of Athens to speak for Christ. Whatever he did in that agora, he got some attention. And he made it clear that he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 21, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something. We want to know what this new teaching is all about. We want to know what it means, but really they were bored. This is Satan's M.O. when it comes to intellectuals. They get bored. And they want to hear something new. We see Satan's work all over here as he cripples them with boredom. And their focus then is not on seeking truth and coming to know that truth more intimately, but rather simply on hearing a new thing, dealing, playing around and doodling with novelties. It's not unlike the prevailing spirit of our own culture. From serial to television, to games, on and on it goes. We are bored. And we want to hear something new. That's who they are. They're very much like us. And when we look at the Stoic and Epicurean philosophies, we see much of our own culture in these thinkers. Well, that leads us to verse 22 in Paul's sermon. His message to the Athenians. What does he say? And as we go through this text, I encourage you, is this the God that you know? Think of what He reveals here about God. We have here a theology from above. Through the superintendence of the Spirit of God, giving to us the Word of God and proclaiming here is who God really is. What does Paul say? Paul's standing here as we see the setup in verse 22. He stands in the midst of the Oropicus and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way that you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now this is a very different crowd, isn't it, than the synagogue crowd. And he adjusts his strategy accordingly. He does not start with the Mosaic Law. He does not start with prophecies about Jesus. Such concepts would be premature with this crowd. Now there are other ideas he'll need to get to, obviously, but at this point that's premature. Rather, he seeks common ground and finds it in a statue. Where does their mind go when he says this? I saw a statue to an unknown God. Immediately, they can't help but think of that statue. They say, ah, yeah, the unknown God. We know that statue. I know right where it is. There were probably a number of them around Athens. Yes, they're thinking immediately of the unknown God. It's a point of departure. He brings them into their world as his world has crossed paths with theirs. He brings an idea that they understand. 
the altar to the unknown God. In their devotion to the Greek pantheon, the Athenians were so devout as to include a statue to a God they might have missed. To the unknown God. And what do you think Paul is thinking? I'm sure as he stood there before that statue and said, To the unknown God. You said it. This place is utterly ignorant of the true God. This is a statue that speaks truth. They don't know God. He's a little more polite as he talks with them, the end of verse 23, and he says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So one of their own altars inadvertently acknowledges that they know there was a God they did not know that they needed to know. I will put light on that. I will tell you about this God. What does he say? Verse 24, Who is your God? The God verse 24, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. What does this message teach us about God? What is revealed about the true and living God? Number one, God is creator of the entire universe. Verse 24. Number two, God is the sovereign ruler over all things. That flows from the fact that He is the Creator of all things. He is the sovereign ruler over all things. He's not assigned His creation to some lesser God. He is the ruler of all things. Verse 24. Number three, God is entirely free of human restraint. Man cannot shape or restrict God. Verse 24. Your temples, they're a box. You're trying to put God in that box. You can't do it. He's entirely free of human restraint. Number four, verse 25, God is entirely self-sufficient and wholly independent of man. We depend on Him. He does not depend on us at all. He asks us to serve Him so that we might find in Him our joy not to complete something lacking in Him. We don't gather to praise Him because He wants compliments. We gather to praise Him to find in Him the glory that spills out from His being to His creatures. He is wholly self-sufficient and wholly independent of man. Verse 25, number 5, God is the sole giver and sustainer of every good gift such that we are entirely dependent upon Him for breath. Verse 26 and number 6, God is the source of every soul. Thus everyone is united in one race under His sovereign direction of human history. We speak of various races. 
in discussion, sometimes we maybe need to do that, but there really is just one. All come from Adam and Eve. And God is the author of that life, uniting all. But not only uniting us in oneness as creatures made in His image, but sovereignly directing human history. God is steering the course. The one who in the beginning brought the world into being is bringing it to the close that He has designed. History is not cyclical. It's not spiraling around in meaningless, repetitive patterns. It is moving where God is steering it. This is the God, he says to the Athenians, that you don't know. The focus of God's sovereign reign over the affairs of human history has as its purpose, verse 27, that they should seek God, this race of man, in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. These words have led to much confusion on the part of interpreters who have, I think, strayed horribly in what Paul is saying here, but God orchestrates human history such that people will seek Him by groping for Him in the dark. He qualifies this quickly to say, don't get the idea that God is hiding. He's not far from each of us. In fact, we live in God. This merges pretty close to the pantheistic thinking that is going on among some of these philosophers, but it is radically distinct on another level. God is the source of our life, yet we grope for Him in the dark, not because He's hidden, but because we're blind. The problem is that the moral darkness is so intense that while people live and breathe under the sustaining power of God, they don't see Him. Every day, people breathe God's air. They eat God's food. They are illumined and warmed by His Son. They are sustained in this environment that we know as earth. They are recipients of His protection and innumerable graces. And in all of this, He holds out His hand, but they remain in their blindness, groping for Him, not in the sense that they want to find Him, but in the sense that they're running from Him. More on that in a moment. Verse 29 being then God's offspring, here's the conclusion, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. That's is going against the pantheism of some of these philosophers, going against the, the uh, pagan deism of some of the others. That is, there are gods, but they have nothing to do with this world. God is very involved. He is the maker, the creator, the sustainer of all that is. But He cannot be reduced to inanimate material. So what is Paul saying? Actually, your anxious production of statues and temples and idols, you know what this all is, Athenians. It's nothing less than a blind groping for the God you really don't want to see. You live in His presence, 
but you love your blindness. Here's good news and also a stern warning. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Again, much misunderstanding on what he is saying here. What does he mean in verse 30? The times of ignorance God overlooked. That is not as some would say that God was bringing people to salvation apart from Christ in the past. It's not to say that as long as you're a good pagan, you come to God. It's very clear in this verse, it would seem, but some miss this. What are the times of ignorance then that God overlooked? The times are the time prior to Jesus. Overlooked does not mean looking the other way or forgiving. Overlooking times of ignorance is not judging them. It is extending patience and not judging, which itself is its own kind of judgment. God's judgment is always a severe mercy. Why is that? Because without judgment, we are left to the folly of our ways and to the destruction of our sin. So when God steps in with judgment, He says, no more. That's a severe mercy to stop us in our sin. Now, on a personal level, there's a lot of application there, isn't there? There are times when God overlooks our sin in the sense that He does not come down in judgment and there are times when He stops us through the rebuke of another believer, through some suffering in our life, and He says, no more. It's time to stop. But here, Paul is looking at this not on an individual basis, but on a historical basis of all of human history. Up to the time of Christ, God has not poured out His ultimate judgment on sin. He has been patient, enduring sin for the right time. The times of this ignorance, God has permitted, patiently endured, overlooked, but now He commands everyone everywhere to repent to repent that is Paul is saying recognize that you have been running after idols you have been running away from the one true and living God you must then turn from your sin and idolatrous ways and embrace the true God you thought I was coming here to introduce new gods I've come to introduce the one true God. If you see Him, you'll turn away from these 30,000 gods that are all over this hill. You'll abandon them. You will repent. God is near. But groping in the dark will not save you. It will only generate more idols. You must turn from your ways and seek the Lord. Johnson writes on this point, the religious pluralism of the past was not a beautiful manifestation of cultural diversity to be celebrated, but a pitiful expression of human folly and ignorance. And so Paul says you must repent because a day of judgment is coming. Who is that judge? It is Jesus 
a man. Verse 31, God has fixed a day. He will judge the world in righteousness by this man. Oh, how on earth do we know this? What proof could you possibly have, Paul? This Jesus rose from the dead. What is the ultimate judgment upon sin? It is death. And Jesus took death. In fact, Jesus took the punishment of God, the judgment of God for sin. He bore that punishment. And the proof that God approved and approves Him as the final judge of the living and the dead is that He defeated death. He rose from the dead. Now we get, you're not talking about anastasis, uh, some God. You're talking about resurrection of a human being. That's just plain stupid. That's more than they could take. And so many will reject his message. But before we get to that, just a few moments, I think a brief word or two of application as we witness Christ in a world where there are those who do not know of the God of Scripture. We should, first of all, I think, on the basis of Paul's proclamation here, gear our message to our audience while remaining faithful to the Gospel. We need to do some adjusting. Now that's obvious to all of us on some level. We have children that will be coming to our church and hearing the Gospel this week. We are not going to speak to them in the same message that we would deliver to a philosopher at the University of Minnesota. Right? There's going to be an adjustment of the message. Is there an adjustment of its essence? No, not at all. Every single person who trusts Christ comes through the narrow gate of faith in Jesus, crucified and risen. We've got to bring them all there. But we will put the message a bit differently depending on who they are. Now, if you are preaching the gospel to a dead Lutheran, there is a knowledge of God there is a knowledge of Scripture, the idea of revelation, and even there you would have to do some work to find out where they are. But that would be very different than proclaiming the Gospel to a Hindu, or a Muslim, or a Buddhist. There is need to adjust our message to understand that there is not a biblical worldview in place. And that is what Paul does here. And there's many people that say on this passage, even conservative interpreters, Paul blew it here. He really messed up at Athens. And when he goes to Corinth, he changes his message. And you'll see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, what I did in Athens, for that, well, that was a mess. I didn't get anywhere. I really messed up. He's not messing up at all. What he is doing is he is adjusting his message to those who have no biblical grid. They have no idea at this point of the law. They have no idea at this point of divine revelation, as Paul would understand it. They have no idea of the prophecies of Messiah. They have very little concept of who Jesus could be, let alone who He is. Paul is laying that out with heavy emphasis upon creation, with heavy emphasis upon idolatry. All of these things, as far as God's law as far as the prophesied Messiah, are vitally important, and he will get there in his time. But he adjusts the message to address the people that he's talking to. Now, we don't need to be geniuses that understand every religion and every person. Every person is made in the image of God, and every person has some sense of right and wrong, which comes from the Creator. 
But we do need to be thoughtful as we interact with people and adjust the message to fit where they're at. Let me explain that a bit further as we move forward. Secondly, we should emphasize the uniqueness and the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. A small view of God can be nothing more than putting another idol on the shelf of the lost. If we have a sense that God is one God among many, even though we would never say that, we simply say that there's just a little adjustment that you need to make to Jesus and everything's fine. All we've done is just set another idol on their shelf. The God that Paul proclaims in this very pagan environment is the sovereign Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords, and you must repent and turn to Him in abject spiritual humility. There is no other God. And to back off on that message, to soft-pedal it, is to damn people. If we could do so. Thirdly, we should call upon the lost then, in connection to the second point, to repent by exposing their false beliefs. I've been there, I'm sure that many of you have been there. We can proclaim the gospel in such a way that we tiptoe around the thing that really needs to be said. We don't want to offend what a person is really trusting in. And so we say, let's just leave that aside so that we can proclaim the gospel. They'll receive the gospel and then they'll get this figured out. That's not how Jesus evangelized. That's not how the apostles evangelized. They went for the juggler, if I could say that in a gracious way. They knew that at the heart there are idolatries to which people are clinging and holding on. Tannehill sees this so well as he says, a mission that does not engage the presuppositions and dominant concerns of those being approached leaves those presuppositions and concerns untouched. With the result that the message, even if accepted, does not transform its hearers, or I would say it this way, creates false converts. If we are speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone who does not believe in creation, whose fundamental orientation toward life is that there is not a creator, we may be adding Jesus as another idol on the shelf. If we are dealing with someone from a pagan culture and we do not express that Jesus Christ is the Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords, sovereign ruler of the universe, if we don't express that, what we are saying may be absolutely accurate and what they are hearing is something very different. Jesus is really a great God. I sure don't want to bother Him or trouble Him. I want to add Him to my pantheon. You say, well, that's not what I said. We have to know what people are trusting in. We've got to take time to bring them to that again. Not to say that there's no place for a quick mention of the gospel. I'd far rather have someone hear something they don't understand than hear nothing. God can use anything. But as we're striving to work with people, we need to be conscious of these things so that we don't proclaim the gospel faithfully in our ears in such a way that condemns them to simply think that Jesus is an add-on. He's not an add-on. He is the Lord. 
Now they get that anastasis, resurrection, is not a god, but is what happened to a Jewish prophet named Jesus. How do they respond? Verse 32, there's a varied response once again. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. This is ridiculous. Others said, we will hear you again about this. What's that? Procrastination. I don't care what was going on in their life. They should have fallen down right there and received Christ as their Savior. Whether dinner was burned or they had some lawsuit to settle. It is procrastination on some level, admitting we don't really know why they've said this. We'll hear you later on this matter. Today is the day of salvation. They put it off. Paul went out from their midst, but as he's going out, verse 34, some men joined him and believed. Undoubtedly, there's more that he says. He explains more of what Jesus has done to pay the penalty of sin, and they trust Christ. Among whom, this is great, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite, that is, one of those who sat on the high council in the Areopagus was converted to Christ. And a woman named Damaris, by naming her, she's important, whether in the church or in in Athens, and others with them, who aren't important enough to be named, or known enough to be named, but are just as important to God. In chapter 18, Paul leaves Athens and he goes to Corinth. Now think of this. If the graphics that we've shown here a little bit today, if you could just kind of think back into Athens... This is the grand, prominent, renowned Athens. But as Paul leaves, it's a small city in the Lord's eyes. He does not have many people here. We find no epistle to the Athenians. We find no reference in the early church to a great church that formed here in Athens. In the world's eyes, it was of the most prominent of places. In God's eyes, it was a spiritual backwater. But there were some who believed. And in light of this great message, and the revelation of God that is here, I ask you, do you know this one true and living God? Do you know this God? Who is He again? the creator of the entire universe, the sovereign ruler over all things, who is entirely free of human restraint. We cannot shape Him. We cannot restrict Him. This is the God who is entirely self-sufficient and wholly independent of everything else. This is the God who is the sole giver and sustainer of every good gift, such that we are entirely dependent upon Him for every breath that we take in. This is the God who is the creator of every soul and the sovereign author of the human history. This is the God who stands as the final judge of the living and the dead. And let me say that if this is not your God, you have no God. And the gods that you suppose that you have, the gods that you don't know you are worshiping, are taking you down. And there will be a day as with Richard Dawkins, where you will stand before this God as your judge. And on that day He will weigh every idle word and every false motive with all-knowing clarity and perfect holiness. As sovereign and reigning Lord, He will know you and search out sins 
you cannot even imagine that you're committing every day of your life to say nothing of the sins that you know about and the idols that you are preferring to Him. Those who reject this God will stand before Him as judge. All who shape God into the image of their own liking and worship other things in His place. I ask you, is there anything that you would not give up to enter into the presence of God? Is there anything in your life that you're not willing to address to make you more ready to enter into the presence of God? That's an idol that is like a cannonball to a drowning man in the ocean. You must repent and let it go. That's not a work of salvation but it is what saving faith is. It drops the cannonball and it reaches for the hand of God who grasps our hand and delivers us from drowning in our depravity. Turn from idols. Receive the one true and living God. What is it that you cling to that keeps you from Him? And do you know this God for who He truly is? Are you clinging to Him as your Lord and Savior? If not, turn from your sin and your idolatry today. Repent and trust Christ alone as your Savior. If, secondly, you know this one true and living God, are you working to make Him known? We cannot miss this in the example of Paul and Christ, our calling is to make known the unknown God. We are not called to huddle against the storm. There's a world out there that doesn't know our God. We're going to huddle together as God's people and make sure they don't penetrate our holy huddle. That's not our calling. Our calling is not to despise the idolaters of this world. We need to see the world as God sees this world. Lost in darkness, groping in the opposite direction of God, we need to come in to strive to make known the unknown God. We rejoice to know God as our Creator, but we need to also rejoice to remember that He created more than the universe, that our Creator God is actively creating a new people and uniting them by faith in Jesus Christ, the assembly, the church, the people of God, being brought to redemption in Christ and given life in Him. That's what our God is up to. Turning the lights on for people who are groping in the darkness, and He uses us as a means to that end. To make known the unknown God. In judgment, He dispersed the nations in Genesis 11, but now He is uniting them by faith in Christ. In the ultimate judgment, His wrath came down on the head of Jesus, and now He is bringing together believers in the church, seeking witnesses to make the unknown God known. Do you know this true God? Are you laboring to make Him known? And if so, then I ask you pointedly, where is your agora? Where is your marketplace? Where is the place that you are pointing people to Christ? 
Where is our Agora? Our Agora, we opened up on Tuesday night, didn't we? Some of you opened up, not only, I'm speaking now corporately, I realize that individually in different places we did the same. But here we opened up our marketplace and saw many people, many backgrounds, orientations to God come. Tonight we open the doors of our church building and for the next five nights, this is our agora for right now. We need more such places. We need more such efforts. We need to continue to strive to make the unknown God known. What will we do as a church? What will you do as an individual to proclaim the glory of this great God? This is not a call for self-reform, a rah-rah session to get us to do what we perhaps haven't done as well as we should, but it is to say, do you know this God? I really believe that if we know Him for who He truly is, we have to share Him. We have to turn the lights on Him. We cannot see people groping in the darkness who need this God and also ourselves love this God and stay quiet. Where's your agora? Where's your connecting point? Where is ours? May we in God's mercy strive to make this unknown God known. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we need your help to this end. With great joy, we contemplate the number of ways in which Christ was proclaimed even by this church this week. But Lord, we must do so much more and be so much more thoughtful of how we might be used as your instruments. Help us to this end. We throw ourselves at your mercy and plead that you would give us fruit. That you will open our eyes to see what is before us. We pray these next five nights as the Word of God is proclaimed repeatedly and often, we trust to many individuals. Please pour out Your grace upon this and bring fruit. Allow us to sow and to water and to bear fruit according to Your sovereign design. But Lord, include us in Your harvest, I pray. For those that do not know Christ as Savior, if these words strike them as folly and foolishness, I pray, God, that they would not quit thinking and that Your Spirit would be active to bring conviction. And I pray that they would, by Your grace and empowerment, dare to believe that Jesus is who He says He is. And may they come to terms with the fact that a man rose from the dead bring salvation to this assembly today, I pray, according to your sovereign purposes and by your mercies in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.